1: Oh, thank you so much, Glenda, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Managing the Complications of Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, or CLL. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the CLL Society and Cancer Care um, and a number of other organizations, cancer organizations, and really because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today. We have on the program today over 469 participants. There's a lot of you on the call, all of the United States, from all different parts of the country. And we also have international participants from Canada, Germany, India, Ireland, Singapore, and the United Kingdom. So really a bit of a global call, and we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Um, Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Pharmacyclics, LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have wonderful speakers today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Brown, and Dr. Brown is Director, Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Center, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Brown is going to be addressing overview and updates on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, new and emerging treatment approaches, managing CLL and comorbidities, and the role of supportive care. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brown.
2: Hello, everyone. Happy to be back on another cancer care call to talk about chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Now, as I'm sure most of you are aware, Chronic lymphocytic leukemia is a disease usually of older people. The median age of diagnosis in the United States is about 72. And about 20,000 people per year get this diagnosis. But there are a couple hundred thousand people living with the disease in the United States alone and more people around the world. So it's reasonably common. Now, most people are feeling fine, and they go to their primary care doctor, for example, for a routine physical exam, and they may have a blood count drawn. And then it's noted that on that blood count, the white blood cell count is higher than usual. And this is typically because the lymphocytes are expanded, and the lymphocytes are a kind of white blood cell. And so if that's seen, that may raise the suspicion in your doctor's mind that chronic lymphocytic leukemia might be a possibility. Other people may turn up with a lump, for example, in their neck, which is a lymph node. And if this persists and is of a certain size, that might lead to a biopsy. And the biopsy would again show those lymphocyte cells. And in CLL, the lymphocyte cells look pretty normal, although they are expanded because CLL is a type of blood cancer where the lymphocyte cells grow more than they should and don't die as much as they should. So they tend to accumulate, and that's in the blood, often first, sometimes in lymph nodes as well, can also eventually affect, or even at the beginning as well, affect the spleen, which is a large lymph node on the left upper side of the abdomen. But at first diagnosis, many people just have the increased lymphocyte count in the blood. And we can diagnose the disease for those people by just sending a simple blood test called flow cytometry. And that shows a pattern that is suggestive of CLL. And nothing else needs to be done in terms of establishing the diagnosis. We don't need to do bone marrow biopsies, and for people who don't have large lymph nodes or other high risk markers, we usually don't get any scans either at diagnosis. We'll typically just follow the blood counts every few months. Now you may wonder if you're diagnosed with this kind of blood cancer, why aren't you treated right away? Well, this is a chronic disease really and it's been studied, people at diagnosis, whether treating them right away is helpful compared to waiting. And most of the treatments that we have control the disease well for potentially long periods of time, but they don't get completely rid of it. And they do have some side effects. And so it made some sense to study whether we should treat people with no symptoms and not much disease or wait until the disease progressed. And it was found that treating people earlier or later didn't affect The course of the disease, except that the people treated sooner had more side effects. So this sort of established this watch and wait policy. Unfortunately, often called by many of our patients, watch and worry. But you know, we I spend a lot of time talking to patients about sort of adjusting to this and understanding that if the disease isn't bothering you, you can coexist peacefully with it. Often for many many years without getting treated now a subset of people may never need treatment for the disease it may just stay the same and not change at all but in other people it may progress those lymphocyte cells may accumulate they may increase in the blood or lymph nodes may turn up or people may get symptoms that could include severe fatigue or very large lymph nodes occasionally drenching night sweats, but most commonly, the reason why we end up treating people is because the normal blood counts are lower, and they go down because the CLL cells have expanded in the bone marrow, and so that becomes an indication for why we would treat people, and this can happen any time in the course of the disease. Some people, when we first meet them, need treatment, and other people may not need treatment for decades or ever, and so... The adjustment process of living with the diagnosis then is something that is often challenging for people initially, but as time goes on, uh, becomes hopefully more manageable, especially with the help of calls like this and uh, organizations of CLL patients. So how do we treat CLL when we do need to treat it? Well, there are a variety of options in this regard, and it's an ever-increasing variety as well, which is very exciting for those of us who've been treating this disease for a while. Now, we have traditional chemotherapy-type drugs, which are very effective in CLL, but we usually combine them with antibodies. Now, an antibody is engineered in the lab to specifically attack the CLL cells, and they've been shown to significantly increase the benefit of chemo, which is why we usually give chemo and an antibody together. And some of the common chemotherapy regimens that we use are FCR, or fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab, although that's reserved for younger patients, bendamustine rituximab, and chlorambucil obinutuzumab. These are all really big words. The rituximab and the obinutuzumab are those antibody categories of drugs. And people can also get antibodies by themselves, and those tend to be very well tolerated. The main side effect of the antibodies is you can get a reaction at the time you get it in clinic. Usually that happens the first time and then goes away after that. And there are no chemotherapy-type side effects usually, although we can occasionally see low blood counts with antibody treatments, just as we do with chemotherapy-type treatments. Now, the chemotherapy and the antibody-type treatments, we usually give for about six months, and then we stop because the disease has come under control. Usually, the white blood cell count should go down to normal, and the lymph nodes should shrink so that they can't be felt anymore. And side effects that you may have been having from the disease, like fatigue, warmth, sweats, should have resolved. And so then we usually then watch it goes back to watch and wait, and we just get periodic blood counts. Now, we have a whole series of new therapies in addition to one of the antibodies, the obinutuzumab antibody is a pretty new one as well. But I think the new therapies that people are maybe particularly excited about are some of the oral drugs, and these are pills, which is very nice obviously. And they're not chemo either. They're targeted inhibitors. They hit a specific, we call them protein, in the cell that keeps the cell alive and growing. And so it has a very specific effect to attack the CLL cells. Although, even though they have a specific effect on the CLL cells, they each have their own unique side effect profile, which is something that we've been learning about over the years that we've been using these drugs and does figure fairly prominently in how we use them now. So I'm going to talk about three different drugs, oral drugs. The first two, we call them kinase inhibitors. That's because the protein they inhibit is a kinase. They're a brutinib and a delalicib. And then the third one is called venetoclax, and that's a different category. It is an oral drug, same way, but the kind of protein it inhibits is a little bit different. So what you would see if you were getting it is a little bit different. So let's start with the kinase inhibitors first. So they're very interesting. They have an unusual pattern of response. So with chemo or with antibodies, we expect the white blood cell count to go down quickly, and that's one of the things we look for to show that they're working early on. With these inhibitors, actually, the white blood cell count will go up initially. And why is that? Well, it's because the inhibitors make the cells leave the lymph node and the bone marrow and go out into the blood. And that's a good thing because out in the blood, the cells can't get the support they get in the lymph node and the bone marrow that help them keep alive and growing. So when they come out into the blood, they die more readily, which is, of course, what we want. But as that happens, the white count will often go up. But at the same time, people feel much better immediately, and their lymph nodes shrink immediately as well. And so that's how we know that it's working, even though the white count goes up. And now, of course, that we have a lot of experience with these drugs, we know that that's what will happen, that the white count will go up, and then over some months, often, it will come slowly downward. And so that's what one has to be aware of if one starts on one of these drugs, because it's a little bit unusual. So abrutinib is clearly the leading one of these drugs at the moment. That inhibits a kinase called BTK, and it's approved for any CLL patient, for all relapsed patients, for people with high-risk disease, so-called deletion of 17P, and for frontline therapy as well. It's generally pretty well tolerated, although a certain percentage of people do end up stopping because of side effects, which I'll let Dr. Danilov talk about more That include a joint pain commonly, sometimes infections. Infections are unfortunately a risk of CLL as well as any of the therapies we do for CLL, which he's also going to talk about in more detail. Some of the unique things that we worry about with abrutinib are that it can increase bleeding, and so we're very careful when we combine it with blood thinners. And it also has some cardiac side effects. It can cause some abnormal heart rhythms, which again, we need to be aware of and monitor. And the other aspect of these oral therapies compared to the chemo is that instead of being done for six months and stopping, you stay on them indefinitely as long as they're helping you. And so like a pill that you might take for your blood pressure, you go on it and you stay on it indefinitely. And so abrutinib has come into very widespread use in CLL because it's very effective in all kinds of disease, all types of prognostic factors. The other kinase inhibitor is called a and this inhibits something called PI3 kinase. And this is also a very effective pill, although it's usually given with rituximab, an antibody as well. That's how it was approved. And we tend to reserve this for later line therapy after a couple of other therapies because it has a, a pattern of autoimmune side effects, actually, which can cause diarrhea, liver test abnormalities and pneumonia sometimes. And those are worse in people who haven't had other treatment. Whereas people who've had a few other treatments or are older, those side effects are not as bad. And the adelalusib works better with at least with fewer problems. There are also... New, there's a new PI3 kinase inhibitor that the FDA is considering right now, actually, that might get approved later this year for people with CLL, and that one's called Duvalis, but that's not approved yet. And then the other oral drug that I wanted to talk about is called Venetoclax, and this one's different from the kinase inhibitors. It doesn't make the white count go up when you get it. It makes it go down, more similar to chemotherapy, and at the same time makes the lymph nodes shrink. And venetoclax has had a lot of activity, even when abrutinib has stopped working for people. And so we turn to it very often in that situation. It works very well in disease with higher risk markers. Now, but there's a recent study that showed that it's also very effective in anyone with relapsed CLL. And the approval for venetoclax right now is limited to the very high risk disease For people who've had other treatments. But we think that based on this new study, it's going to get a broader approval, possibly very soon, within a month or two, in fact. And that would be for any patient with CLL who's had prior therapy. One advantage of this new venetoclax regimen is that it's only given for two years and stopped. So it's a little bit more like the chemotherapy regimens in terms of being a shorter duration although it's two years rather than six months and that would be given with the rituximab antibody as well the i'll just say a word about antibodies with these oral drugs i mentioned that we usually give rituximab with adelisib that's how it was studied that led to its approval with the brutinib. it's not so clear that giving one of the antibodies adds anything to brutinib by itself. So in most usual circumstances, we don't necessarily do that. Venetoclax seems to benefit from having an antibody with it, either the rituximab antibody or there have been clinical trials looking at the obinutuzumab antibody as well. So with all these options, how do you choose a therapy in conjunction with your doctor? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, we still don't want to treat you until your disease needs treatment. Which may not be for a very long time or ever, and so and that should be viewed as a good thing, but then, if it is time for treatment, we usually like to look at some risk markers of your disease. Sometimes we do this at diagnosis as well, but as well, but it's really important to do it at the time that treatment is started looking for that 17P deletion or P53 mutation, which are the higher risk markers. People with those, we don't give the chemotherapy options to. We would stick to the oral drugs because the oral drugs have marked effectiveness there, whereas the chemo is not quite as good in that subgroup. And so we combine that information with whatever other medical problems you have, how old you are, how healthy you are, and as well as if it's, not the first time you've gotten therapy, then we think about what other prior therapies you had and how long it's been since then. And we put all of that together in conjunction with the data we have on the therapies to try and figure out what would be best for you. And then of course, your preferences with respect to therapy play into that as well. And so I think maybe there I'll stop and turn over to Dr. Danilov, who's going to talk about how we manage the various complications.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Brown. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful introduction to the whole call and lots of wonderful information. And we are getting questions already, um, so there will be lots of questions for both you and Dr. Danlov during the Q&A. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Alexi Danilov, and Dr. Danlov is Associate Professor of Medicine, Knight Cancer Institute, Oregon Health and Science University, o- O-H- O-H- actually. Um, and Dr. Nellis is going to be addressing managing complications of COL, including infection, anemia, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and other health conditions, the important role of clinical trials, communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and finding the best treatment approach for you. It's really my pleasure now to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Dan Allen.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, It's great to be on this call. And uh, uh, we're talking about uh, general complications of CLL. Um, It is uh, difficult to not talk about infection. So infection is one of the main risks uh, of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And uh, in fact, uh, the uh, uh, diagnosis of chronic lymphocytic leukemia is uh, associated uh, with an impact on immune system. So immune system is a very complex uh, entity which incorporates uh, many different cells fighting together uh, uh, to stave off infections. And uh, there are several components to this, including so-called lymphocytes, uh, which uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia is a disease of, and in uh, uh, CLL, we see impaired immunity, which uh, spans T cells, uh, B lymphocytes, um, neutrophils, which is one of the first lines of defense um, uh, against infections, as well as uh, some um, uh, what we call humoral factors, such as complement. So in general, the diagnosis of uh, uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia um, uh, comes with a certain risk uh, of Infectious complications. So, um, usually, however, it does uh, take some time for those complications to develop, and most of those infections would be associated with more advanced disease. So, very many people. May have a diagnosis of CLL for decades and in fact not experience those complications. So it's not a necessary feature. However, we should be aware of those enhanced risks as there are ways to approach this. And so, what are the infections associated with uh, uh, CLL? So those uh, folks are typically have high, they would typically have high risks of pneumonias, and those are uh, those are one of the most common complications of uh, CLL, even before therapy. Is administered. Um, even uh, other infections such as uh, Staphylococcus or less common bacteria such as Haemophilus uh, um, um, are also fairly common. And then viral infections uh, such as uh, herpes zoster or shingles uh, have uh, uh, increased incidence in patients uh, with CLL, increased frequency, and um, uh, herpes, simplex, herpes simplex infections as well. So um and again uh, the risk of those infections uh, in general tends to go up with time as the disease becomes more advanced. So it is interesting uh, that uh, the risk of such infections may be even somewhat higher in uh, patients who do not have avert CLL but have so-called monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, which is essentially a CLL precursor um, entity. So in general, this um, uh, uh, dysregulation of B-cells and uh, turning into CLL cells seem to be one of the uh, factors underlying this. So what do we do? About this. One of the uh, most effective measures for preventing infections in CLL is actually vaccination. So we routinely recommend, uh, pneumococcal vaccines. And there are two of them now. So there is PCV-13, which, uh, if somebody has not been vaccinated before, we would administer first. And then a few months later, we would administer the so-called pneumovax-23. So that has, uh, uh, good coverage for common pneumococcal infections. And those are both, uh, non live uh, vaccines. So in the past, uh, we haven't uh, uh, been using uh, shingles vaccine as much because it is a general recommendation which still stands that live vaccines should not be administered to CLL patients. Uh, however, recently, uh, we have uh, now be, uh, be gained access to a non-live uh, um, uh, herpes zoster vaccine called chendrix. and uh, in my clinic, I have studied routinely vaccinating patients with that uh, uh, with that vaccine as well. And in fact, uh, often I get a question: Well, I had. Uh, uh, shingles 10 or 15 years ago, should I still get the vaccine? And the answer is yes. Um, I wouldn't administer it uh, after a recent uh, shingles episode because that does uh, it boosts the immune system against uh, herpes zoster. However, after a period of three years, it is uh, very safe and I would say advisable um, uh, to go ahead with the Shingrix vaccine like that. So, pneumococcal vaccination. Um, uh, uh, non-live uh, uh, herpes zoster uh, vaccination, um, and, of course, annual flu vaccines. Again, non-live uh, flu vaccines are indicated for all patients with CLL regardless of whether they undergo treatment or not. So uh, the treatments thems- by themselves are associated with uh, infections as well. Unfortunately, unfortunately, no- nothing of what we do is hundred percent safe. So, and if uh, just to go over, over briefly, uh, uh, some of some of those uh, chemotherapy is still a standard of care for patients with CLL. And, uh, fludarabin and rituximab is a regimen still, uh, used across the country and the world for, particularly for younger patients, uh, with CLL. And the reason we, uh, tend not to use this regimen so much for older patients is because exactly, uh, this, uh, regimen is associated with a fairly, uh, high risk of, uh, uh, bacterial infections, uh, viral infections, as well as some unusual fun- fungal infections. So this regimen does require certain uh, 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 antimicrobial prophylactic antibiotics uh, while, while it's being administered. So uh, bendamustine rituximab, which uh, Dr. Brown has mentioned, uh, we we use uh, more widely in older patients with uh, CLL as... Um, uh, it has been associated with fewer infections uh, overall, but still there is a risk of pneumonia, there is a risk of uh, 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 getting a bacterial infection in the blood, and there is for sure a risk of uh, 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 herpes uh, or shingles, uh, and uh, therefore I at least routinely use uh, antiviral uh, drug prophylaxis for patients who might treat with bendamastin rituximab. In general, rituximab, the antibody, or all the antibody treatments are associated with the risk of uh, uh, shingles. And that risk persists for about six months um, after the treatment is stopped. So any patient who receives rituximab or abinituzumab in my clinic, regardless of whether I give give it to them as a single agent or in combination with some other therapy uh, would um, receive uh, antiviral prophylaxis. With a cyclin, so uh, then with newer agents, uh, some of the data is still emerging, but again, uh, most of them would have some risks. Say, so ibrutinib, um, in a recent uh, follow-up. Uh, uh, um, Presented by ohio state uh, university we have we have learned that uh, it is associated with uh, certain fungal infections um it is also associated with viral infections so of course um a lot of the patients who go on abrutinib now have received prior prior chemotherapy. So it is not clear how much of that would be brutinib alone or just the disease and prior immunosuppression. So, but nevertheless, I think we all agree that there is a risk of bacterial, um, Uh, uh, viral infections with Ibrutnib, there is some risk of reactivation of hepatitis um, uh, with Ibrutnib as well. Um, However, some of those risks are still uh, pretty difficult to measure. So um, um, I I believe that uh, many of us still do not routinely use uh, infectious prophylaxis in patients who are on Ibrutnib. However, that I know does vary somewhat across the country. Uh, so is another novel agent that Dr. Brown has mentioned, and that uh, agent has been associated with a fairly high risk of unusual infections as well. So there is persistent risk of bacterial and viral infections, but also uh, some risk of unusual uh, fungal infections requiring uh, antibiotic prophylaxis and uh uh, risk of uh, uh, unusual viral infections such as cytomegalovirus, cy- cytomegalovirus as well. And uh, finally, venetoclax uh, can also cause immunosuppression and uh, bacterial infections, just like other drugs that we use. So essentially, um, while patients with CLL do have a high risk of infections, um, 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 this risk does get, is augmented by most therapies that we use today. Um, however, at this point, we have learned quite well how to manage both background baseline risk of infections as well as the risk which comes with those therapies. So in terms of um, other complications of CLL, um, uh, the fairly common complications are autoimmune complications of uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And I've been specifically asked to mention um, uh, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and one related condition is immune thrombocytopenia. Um, and uh, those um, are not necessarily due to progressive disease or bone marrow infiltration, but by, C- by CLL cells. But rather, this is uh, a manifestation of immune system uh, gone uh, somewhat haywire, where the immune system begins to make. Uh, what we call antibodies, or uh, products which uh, which destroy the patient's own red cells, or Platelets, and um, that is that usually needs to be managed uh, fairly emergently within, you know, days or uh, sometimes weeks. Um, and um, treatments for for that condition are somewhat different. We typically would uh, start with steroids, like we do uh, in some other autoimmune conditions, um, um, such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, etc. So, um, and steroids would often uh, be enough to control those autoimmune phenomena and then we decide whether additional treatment with uh, with CLL directed therapy is uh, indicated at that stage um so, steroids themselves are also associated uh, with uh, risk of infections so uh and most patients who have those complications would have to take steroids prednisone, for two or three months, and therefore uh, prophylactic antibiotics are also used during that period of time um, in terms of um, um importance of clinical trials uh in in general uh this is a, this is somewhat a bit a bit of a switching gears here but uh in the era of new therapies uh they those the clinical trials can offer a lot of benefits to uh patients with CLL so um And often patients would ask themselves, uh, why should I try something that researchers are not sure will work? Uh, And uh, that is uh, a very good question. And certainly being part of a clinical trial may have some risk but it uh, will also have some benefits. So the clear benefits of a clinical trial uh, would be that you may get a new treatment for CLL before it is available to everyone. And uh, I would say that in the past seven, eight years, there has been rampant progress in CLL therapy where uh, there has been um, a lot of uh, stepping away from conventional chemotherapy regimens in favor of targeted therapy, which are in general associated with, very good responses and uh, uh, fewer complications uh, than chemotherapy in some cases, so um, uh, access to those novel agents before they are approved by the FDA because that process does uh, take a long time um, is uh, can be sometimes very helpful, particularly for patients who have uh, used up uh, several of the options um, available to them through insurance. And uh, as the bar has been set uh, pretty high in therapy of uh, CLL those days, we certainly anticipate responses in the vast majority of patients that we treat, even on clinical trials. The risks uh, of a, of getting a treatment that doesn't work um, are getting lower and lower. And then uh, patients who go on clinical trials do end up playing somewhat more active role in their own health care. They do get... Uh, uh very detailed follow up and uh check ups and uh uh they and and they have a chance of helping others get better get better treatment for their health problems c l l um um in the future so um, there is, of course, a risk uh, uh, that the treatment new treatment may not work, uh, even though that risk is there for some of the standard treatments as well. And there is a risk that uh, new treatments may cause some side effects, which uh, we would not necessarily know um, about until um, that treatment is tried. So, but overall, the benefits of uh, participation in clinical trials are uh, many. In terms of uh, finding the best treatment approach, uh, whether this is uh, participation in a clinical trial or using some of the standard of uh, uh, care options, chemotherapy or novel agent, ibrutinib, or antibody therapy with the benituzumab, uh, this is a very complicated question, which becomes, uh, and answers become very individualized, so that's point, we consider what are the goals of therapy. We know that CLL to this day is still incurable disease. So is our goal to improve quality of life? Is our goal to achieve as deep a response as possible with the longest uh, possible treatment-free period? Um, uh, so we always have a goal of longevity in mind, but sometimes, um, you know, aggressive treatment, uh, pushing hard um, in in folks who have multiple comorbidities and risking uh, terrible complications may not be uh, worth it, you know, as it may compromise quality of life. So that becomes a very uh, individualized discussion between the patient and uh, the physician. And as we expand our options of therapy of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, I'd say that we are very, very likely, we always are able to find an option which fits all the individual goals. And uh, so, therefore, it is an exciting time in CLL, and the future is very bright. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Dalla. That's really excellent, and thank you so much. Um, wonderful presentation and a lot of attention to all the details of some of the complications and side effects that can happen and how to deal with them and treat them. So thank you. Um, I have there questions uh, for you uh, as well during the Q&A. Thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker is Ms. Patricia Kaufman. Ms. Kaufman is co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, Inc., and um, it's really she's going to be addressing the programs and services of the CLL Society. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman.
4: Hi, I'm Patricia Kaufman, the co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit CLL Society. The CLL Society is here to help with a website full of patient-friendly resources. Whether you are newly diagnosed or have been a CLL patient for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage in your disease process. We teach, we explain, and we connect. We know that smart patients get smart care, so we have developed tools to make you a smarter patient. As media, we cover all the major hematology conferences where we interview the world's top CLL researchers on cutting-edge advances in treatment options, and we explain what this research means to CLL patients. We demystify CLL terminology in our glossary of terms, and we cut the confusion in our sections on acronyms and abbreviations so that you can better understand the language of CLL. Got your lab test results from your healthcare provider, but you don't know what they mean? Compare them to our chart of normal lab values to understand what they mean. And let us connect you with other CLL patients through our ever-expanding network of CLL-specific support groups across the U.S. Plan to attend one of our many patient educational forums where we gather the best minds in CLL to give you an in-depth look at the many facets of CLL treatment. And if you are one of those patients who does not have access to a CLL expert, please come to our website and apply to be considered as a candidate for our free expert access program. The research that the CLL Society does becomes your voice, informing healthcare providers, researchers, and the pharmaceutical industry as to what CLL patients really want in their treatment. Visit our website to get the kind of knowledge that strengthens your ability to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Coffin. That was really excellent and just a wonderful resource. And for, I know many of you on this call have already um, contacted the CLL Society, but if you haven't, uh, please do. It's just a wonderful resource for all of you to have um, and to actually go as a go-to organization. And I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care before we take many questions that are coming in. So um, Cancer Care is a free national organization um, providing help to people living with cancer and CLL, of course, um, we are, our, our services are provided by trained oncology social workers, and we provide counseling and support, really a chance to talk with someone about some of your concerns or questions about, about how to deal with your CLL, how to cope with it, how to talk to your family or employer or your children, um, and just how to, how to think about it for yourself as well. We also offer support groups, and we have support groups both in, in, on the telephone, so telephone support groups and online support groups. And I should call out that online support groups are uh, both available to people in the US and internationally. Um, the telephone support groups are as well, just depending on the time exchange. But the um, online groups, of course, are um, they, there is no people can post at any time of the day or night. And there's a trained oncology social worker who is um, moderating those programs as well. So there, many people find it helpful to be able to talk with someone else online or on the telephone about the experiences that they're having um, so, and really to get support from each other. Um, We also do provide financial assistance, and we have a copay assistance foundation as well. So there's lots of services that you can access from cancer care, and when you get your evaluations at the end of the program, all of our phone numbers and websites um, and all the resources that we mentioned during the program today will be um, available to you, so you'll be able to use those numbers to contact us. And so now we do have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask... Uh, uh, Glenda to bring all of our speakers on board and to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Some of you have already been posting questions, so we have a lot to start with already, but still we want to be sure everybody has a chance to ask their question as well. And if you don't get to your question by the end of today's call, I will let you know how to get your questions answered. So we'll definitely address everyone's concerns. Glenda?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from the line of Sue O. Your line is now open. Hi. Um
5: I have CLL since 2006, and um, Dr. Rye is my my oncologist, who I call the CLL guru. And um, I only had three rounds of chemo because my body could not tolerate the Rituxin or the benzamustine and so he watched me every month for a year. And now I've been in remission five years, and um, I am constantly in the hospital with either pyelonephritis or a lung infection, and he gives me IVIG uh, immunoglobulin antibody infusions every few weeks, and I don't understand why I'm constantly sick, and I can't move on with my life, and I trust Dr. I more than anybody. Um, but the hospital stuff is becoming very um, old to me, and I can't move on with my life, so I was wondering um, if there's anything else I could do, because it's it's just tiring.
1: Well, that's an excellent question, Sue, and um, I'm going to ask Dr. Danloff if he could address this question, and then um, I'll then, of course, ask Dr. Brown if she wants to add anything to it, and then I'll have some comments as well. But, um, Dr. Danloff, would you like to start this, this
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. That sounds like a difficult situation. And, uh, um, um, uh, yeah, so Dr. I is certainly one of the founders in the CLL field, and uh, it is uh, uh, difficult to make a uh, recommendation over the phone. As as I said, uh, uh, infections in CLL is one of of the big problems, and we do use IVIG on a regular schedule to try to mitigate Some of those problems, Um, uh, 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 we do use infections, frequent infections, as an indication to treat um, uh, uh, sometimes. So it really depends on the extent of the disease uh, whether that is something that um, uh, could be done at this stage, Um, um, and. and, uh, use, use of prophylactic antibiotics may sometimes be an option as well uh, if um, uh, if uh, we find uh, recurrent uh, uh, bacterial infections with uh, with the same uh, same microbe. So, but yeah, um, uh, another line of treatment of CLL versus uh, prophylactic IVIG, prophylactic antibiotics are the options that we think about um, in this in this kind of a situation.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And, Dr. Brown, did you want to add anything
2: comprehensive? No, I agree completely with Dr. what Dr. Dinalov said.
1: And, Sue, so, because it does affect your coping and getting on with your life, I would suggest you actually contact the CL Society, and you also can contact Cancer Care because you may, in addition to your getting excellent medical care, which you, it sounds like you're getting really uh, diligent care, and you've discussed all of your concerns with your physician, that you may also just want to have a place to talk about what can i do um, are there things that i can do um that would occupy the time that i um that may not require my being physically active that may be may allow me to do things so i think i would definitely suggest you can contact cancer care Um, uh, and also um, the Seattle Society who may just have some just thinking about things that you could do just to feel that there's uh, you know it's very important often sometimes where we can't do the things we used to do sometimes as I'm hearing you say but perhaps there may be other things that could occupy your time that are different but that actually would at least um, give you a sense of that there's something happening for you that um, I think that could occupy you and allow you to cope um, with a very difficult situation is what you're describing to us so thank you for sharing that and, and please go back treating healthcare team. Discuss it with them. There also may be staff at the institution that you're that you're going to that could also offer you that extra support as well. Really, it's really kind of talking support to see what, which is different than medical treatment, of course, um, but sometimes allows people to figure out a way to um, to cope in, in different ways. Um, and um, uh, do we have another question um, on the telephone? Or?
0: I'm not showing a question
1: over the phone line. OK. So we have lots of questions online. So I'm going to um, take the like, uh, next question that we have on um, the telephone. Um, so um, somebody has a question to Dr. Um, Brown Is there a way uh, to test a CL patient's blood to see which of the various treatments will give the best chance of success? So, that, again, that's a, a general question if you can just address it in a general way.
2: You said, is there a way to test what kind of patient's blood? I didn't quite
4: catch that. A CLL. Um, CLL patient, okay.
2: Sorry. So, so not. the short answer is not exactly. <laughs> there are certain specific things that we can test that we do know correlate with particular outcomes or benefits from particular therapies. I mentioned the the FISH test where we're particularly interested in whether there's loss of the short arm of chromosome 17, which is called 17P. That's very important because if that's there, we want to turn to brutinib or venetoclax, and we don't use the chemotherapy regimens. They don't work as well in that case. There's also a test called IGVH, which is a little bit more complicated. But and People with CLL fall in roughly two groups for that IGVH test, called mutated or unmutated. And it turns out that having the mutated kind can have very, very long remissions with the chemoimmunotherapy regimens. But the oral agents work too. So it's still the usual consideration of age, other medical problems, et cetera. But we do know that with that mutated IgVH, chemotherapy can work particularly well. Those are the two main tests that we have to look at, and they don't predict any specific response to any specific therapy. There is also now developing some literature for people who've been on a brutinib that sometimes there are some mutations, changes in the CLL cells that occur then, which we think may lead to particular, or when that happens that may lead to the brutinib not working as well later and there's a little bit of evidence that venetoclax will work in that situation particularly well we know that venetoclax has the best data following a brutinib if the brutinib isn't controlling the disease as well anymore and so but that's not something that's routinely done but that may come to the fore more in the future
1: Thank you. And I'm going to actually, um, because we have so many questions online, I'm going to actually move from one question to the next, and I'll have our physicians address them, and um, we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, so I've, uh, the next question is um, for Dr. Um, Danilov. Um, how often do the CL patients develop other autoimmune disorders, such as um, dermatitis, dermatitis, my, my, my or a yeah. okay. or
3: similar. Yes. So this association has been uh, actually noted for years that uh, patients with uh, CLL also have high high risk of other autoimmune disorders such as uh, what you mentioned dermatomyositis as well as uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Also, um, so it's hard to estimate those risks, you know. So, but so off top of my head, I would say maybe two three fold risk. Um, um, uh, but uh, compared to general populations, population, but knowing how rare those disorders in general are, it's hard to know what that means. Also, there is association in the, in patients' families between those autoimmune conditions and, uh, CLL, so which, which we find. So it, it, it is not necessarily a very common, uh, uh, occurrence, but it does happen. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Um, And a question of Dr. Brown, in addition to having been diagnosed with CLL, SLL, I have also been diagnosed with several complex kidney cysts and psoriatic arthritis. Is there any relationship between the CLL, SLL, and these other conditions?
2: So taking the psoriatic arthritis first, Dr. Danilov just addressed that. That would be in the category of these autoimmune-type arthritis or rheumatologic problems, which are enriched a couple-fold. and. CLL patients. But still, because they're very rare, we don't see them that commonly. But there probably is some association there. Now, regarding the kidney cysts, it's very, very common to have simple fluid-filled cysts in the kidneys. We see them a lot when, if we do get a scan in a patient. And oftentimes, that's not a problem at all. The one issue that I would raise, which brings up another sort of more general issue of something important with CLL patients, is that there can be a higher risk of getting other types of cancer. And so in addition to doing the vaccines, like Dr. Danilov said, I always recommend that my patients do all their regular cancer screening, their mammograms, their pap smears, their colonoscopies, as well as skin exams because skin cancers are particularly common. And so when you mention that there may be complex kidney cysts, I would just make sure that those have been evaluated, which... We can often be done just by imaging, knowing from the imaging, but that, that's that been evaluated for the consideration of the possibility that uh, you don't think that it's cancer, just because there is a little bit higher risk in people with CLL. Awesome.
1: Thank you. And a question for um, Dr. Danilov. We hear about deletion 17P as difficult to treat, poor, poor, poor response. Is... Um, 11Q, also considered difficult to treat with pro-response? Are BTK inhibitors the best available drugs to treat 11Q deletion? In a general way, this is a... (laughs)
3: Yes, so uh, I mean the the news is certainly good there. Um, yes, seven, deletion 17p patients with deletion 17p have in general, and, I, and again, it's, we can't say for everybody, but in general, they respond not as well for, to chemotherapy, but they have uh, uh, they they do enjoy good responses to uh, drugs such as abrudinib or Vinidoclax. With 11q. Um, Those patients still may respond pretty well uh, to chemotherapy, and then some other factors also come into play. Uh, Dr. Brown has mentioned IGVH mutational status, so that also begins to matter at that point. Uh, But patients with 11Q may still respond to, uh, to chemotherapy, although on average, not as well as those who do not have deletion 17P or deletion 11Q. In terms of ibrutinib, yes, it is a great option, and uh, uh, emerging data suggests that those patients probably respond just as well as everyone else uh, to ibrutinib. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Um, And a question for Dr. Brown. Um, If I am WNW as an unmutated TRI-12-er would, knowing if I was also NOTCH1 and IGVH4.39, would that help me know what the course of my future treatment would look like? I'm not going to get a general question here. To answer it in general way.
2: Right. So that that is an extremely sophisticated question related to uh, some very more advanced molecular tests that are sometimes available for CLL. Notch1 is a mutation that can be seen in CLL, which uh, particularly when it's associated with a particular V gene. The, the V gene is the what we look at when we do that IGBH test, and we find out which one is there when we do the IGBH test. So the 4-39 one, particularly with the Notch mutation together, has been associated with a higher risk of Richter's transformation. That being said, I can't recommend this as something to be done to try and understand an individual person's disease course. This is based on small, what we call retrospective series, where these analyses have been done later in time, and people have gone back and tried to look and associate whether these mutations found now have anything to do with what happened. with patients earlier, and the number of patients is pretty limited. The number of studies is quite limited, and there's not something that we know to do based on the results. It doesn't change anything about how we think about a person's situation, and so it's not routinely recommended uh, as testing for anyone, basically.
1: Thank you very much, and a question now for Dr. Uh, um, Danilov. Um, so uh, the question is, taking um, 100-milligram lab results within range, um, absolute lymphocytes well under high range on 3900, but night sweats have returned. Could sweats be related to other cause?
3: Well, the short answer is certainly yes. Uh, so, it could be related to other cause. and uh, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think I can say much more than that. Uh, I, I think it's something which uh, 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 this uh, the person who is asking the question will have to talk to about uh, with their physician.
1: That's a very good, and for all of the questions that have been asked and our speakers have addressed, we want you to take this information back to your Treating healthcare team. Some of your questions are very, very specific, um, so our, our speakers have given you some general guidelines, but, of course, um, your healthcare care team, of course, knows all your details and, and much greater details, so that we hope this has given you some information to feel more confident asking your healthcare care team these questions. So that's, but keep asking. We still have many more here. So I'm going to... There's another one. Um question about... for Dr. Brown. i just to find it. I'm sorry. There's a few here. Um, it is about... Um, how do you know? It's it's about the... Oh, yes. Can you explain how... And this is for Dr. Brown. Uh, can you explain how SLL is different from
2: CLL? Right. So I was thinking of discussing that on the call, but then I didn't end up doing so. So... You know, back when we first learned about what CLL was, some people would turn up, as I described, with the cells in the blood, but other people would turn up mostly with lymph nodes, and their blood count would be normal. And so, because we didn't understand that that much about the underlying biology of the disease, that was called a different disease if it was mostly in the lymph node, not the blood. And that's what we mean by SLL, small lymphocytic lymphoma. So the formal definition is that the lymphocyte count is less than the 5,000 required for CLL, but that there are lymph nodes or bone marrow disease, that lymph nodes really, that meet the criteria for having what we now have, we understand now that the cells are the same in CLL and SLL, and we treat it really the same, and so it's it's been unified into one disease called CLL SLL, and it just has to do with this sort of historic difference in how we identified the disease initially.
1: Thank you. Excellent. Um, and question for Dr. Dan-Lav. Um Is bone marrow infiltration considered in the treatment approach?
3: um yes uh bone marrow infiltration may be considered an different approach um I, I, I wouldn't say that it necessarily defines what we do um there are really very many factors which are probably more important than bone marrow infiltration um but uh sometimes uh um and that is not a hard and fast rule, but antibody therapy may be helpful in in folks who have predominant bone marrow infiltration, not so many lymph nodes. But again, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. But so yes, it can be a consideration for sure.
1: Excellent, Excellent questions, I have to say, and our speakers are wonderful. Um, this is amazing, and this is our last question, for Dr. Brown. I've recently been diagnosed with SLL, and my lymph nodes are enlarged under my armpits. I am on watch and wait. Since SLL shows up in the lymph nodes, how is SLL monitored during the watch and wait period? My blood counts have been perfect. So, it's just it's probably a question. Right. Well,
2: right. So that follows on what we were just discussing. So uh, that would usually be monitored by physical exam. The lymph nodes are commonly in the neck or the armpits or the groin area, where both the patient and the physician can feel them. And so. You go into your doctor and get an exam, and we monitor the lymph nodes. And then monitoring the blood counts is also important over time because even though they're totally normal now, sometimes over time they will change. And then, of course, when you see your doctor, we inquire about symptoms. We just generally check on your general well-being as well. Excellent.
1: Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank all of our participants who asked such great questions, both on the phone and online. Um, It really enhances the call. It is good questions that you've all asked, and uh, so um, and uh, we could go on all afternoon. But of course, we have a time frame here, so I wanted to actually address all of you who still have questions, and that we're not, we could not get to everyone's question. Um, So, um, if First of all, I don't want to anyway, and we don't anyway during this call want to sidestep your healthcare team. They are, of course, they know the most about you, and we very much encourage you to take the information you've gleaned from today's program and go back to your treating healthcare team. And if you have a question, they're the perfect people, of course, to ask. And I know many of you like to go other places to get information, which is perfectly normal, and like human, to want to do that, and so we do recommend that um, one thing that you can do is um, that you, certainly we have a CLL society um, as a collaborating organization on this call today, and they have lots of information on their website, um, and so I would definitely recommend that you go there, and that the information on their website will be put on your evaluation materials when you get at the end of the program, so you'll have that information at your, hand, you know, your beck and call. Um, We also, of course, there are many other cancer organizations that we'll list as resources for you as well because there are quite a few of them. Um, I always like to call out to the American Cancer Society. They do have a 24-hour call center, which means you can call them any time of the day or night, and they also have an active website as well with lots of information. The other place I always recommend is the National Cancer Institute. Um, They are, of course, they keep all the evidence-based information about treatment and and they have a, a uh, um 800 number, and they also have um, a website, www.cancer.org, and they have a live chat feature, which is good for people both in the U.S. and internationally. Where you can post your question, and the information specialists will get you all the information and data they can collect from their resources, and to have so that you have it at your fingertips as well. Um, and um, then for those of you who actually want to actually access services from cancer care. Um, I would say to go ahead and call Cancer Care or visit our website. You can either post your question on uh, the, there's a, the, you can go to our website, and there's a way you can ask a question, or you can also, um, to one of our oncology social workers, we'll get back to you, or you can call our 800 number. Um, and that would be for any of our services that I've mentioned. So um, that you, any of the needs for counseling or practical and financial assistance, please go ahead and, and contact us for that. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, um, I do not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. I know there are times when you may feel alone. We want you to know that you now have lots of resources really at your back and call. Some of them are simply a telephone call or a mouse click away for international participants, the websites all of this information is available to you. Um, and I do want to mention a program that we're having on cancer perspective, current perspectives on cancer survivorship. Many of you are living over time with cancer. Um, with uh, with CLL, and um, I think you might find it an interesting program. It's on June 19th, and um, we will be sending information about that as well. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.